Welcome to this podcast from Central, Jesus at the Heart. More information is available from www.jesusattheheart.org. Hello, it's great to be with you here this morning um, and sharing God's word and opening up his word together. My name's Jonathan. It's probably worth a quick intro because a lot of you... Do I need to pull this back a bit? Um, a lot of you may have seen me from behind one of these instruments. And uh, this is my first time speaking at the uh, 10.30, so I'm just opening up where we need to get to. So yeah, just a quick intro. Um, I'm Jonathan Dean. I've been in Edinburgh for about, back in Edinburgh for about three years. Um, I work as a business psychologist, helping organizations get the best out of their people. And um, I love being involved in this church, and in, particularly in the worship life of the church. And having said that, it's maybe worth making the connections about my introduction. So I'm married to Kirsty. She's the children's worker, and uh, she's hosting this morning. Thomas is also my brother, who is the worship pastor. And I think he also thinks he's the resident comedian for the church. Uh, you can be the judge of that. And it's actually been quite hard because a lot of people, when I, especially over the last three years, come up, come up to me and say, oh, you sound incredibly like Thomas. Oh, that's so interesting. You guys sound so similar. And I'm like, no, he sounds like me. I'm the older brother. At least I say that in my head. Actually, outwardly, I just nod and uh, you know, smile politely and repress the pain. But um, anyway, let's get some focus. So we're in the eighth and final Sunday of the Witch Jesus series. So we're going through the first half of John. And well done, everyone. I've got to say, we're not well known for our long series here at Central. And we've done very well to, to get through it and be patient. But it's been a really important one. We've been thinking about this idea that what we think when we think about Jesus is the most important thing in life. That it makes all the difference to who we are and who we're becoming. And as we're coming to the end of this time in John, I thought it'd be helpful just to do a, a quick reflection, a quick look back, a quick whistle-stop tour of where we've been and where we've gone. So firstly, we've cracked down on some of these other versions, some of these other views of Jesus uh, that get in the way of who he really is. The comfort blanket Jesus that makes us feel better on a rainy day, particularly today. The last minute or trump card Jesus that helps us when we really need it. The swear word Jesus that gets our more aggressive moments. The moral truth Jesus giving us the high ground to speak from. Or maybe the middle class Jesus that makes us the complete human being package. And instead, we've kind of thrown them aside and said, actually, what's the Gospel of John saying in who Jesus is? It's saying, it's Jesus, the word of God incarnate, becoming flesh. Jesus, the miracle worker, turning water into wine. Jesus, the Savior, that we might believe and have eternal life. Jesus, the living water for all who are thirsty. Jesus, the Son of the Father, doing what he sees his Father doing. Jesus, the forsaken one, deserted by so many of his disciples. And Jesus, the bringer of freedom, setting us free with his truth. So we've taken time to think about him from these different perspectives, from these different angles thinking what would those listeners in the first century Israel, what would they have heard and what does that then mean for us today? And throughout this journey, this story that's emerging about who he is, 
not only are we discovering who he is in this multifaceted way, but we start to see how people react to him, these disputes that start to play out. As he goes about his day proclaiming, demonstrating who he is in word and deed, people are believing him and people are rejecting him. People are following him and people are walking away. Attitudes are being surfaced. There's this growing hostility. In particular, the Pharisees, we, we um, have heard a little bit about them, the teachers of the law, the guys who hold the monopoly definition on who Jesus is, were getting pretty riled by the whole thing. This guy had rocked up, turned a whole load of understanding on its head, and basically created a lot of hassle that they could do without. So much so that if we look at the very last uh, verse of the previous chapter, chapter 8, people were throwing stones or picking up stones to throw at him, and he managed to slip away out of sight. I don't know who uh, has seen the latest Scepter film, James Bond, anyone? Yeah, a few. Um, But the the opening scene is this heaving city in uh, South America, and there's hundreds of people, and, and Bond just kind of walks subtly through. No one kind of picks him up and then slips out of sight. I like to think that that's how Jesus did it. But then probably the James Bond Jesus is another stereotype that we need to get rid of, so yeah, let's not do that. Um, so if we get into the passage, it's John 9, 134, and instead of having my voice rambling on for ages, I've asked Stephanie to come and share with us for this. So John 9, um, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who'd formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who'd been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he'd received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. The Jews still 
did not believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who'd been blind. Give glory to God, they said, we know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Thanks very much, Stephanie. So as we read this passage, I want to slightly reframe the strapline that we've had for the last few weeks. That it's not just what we think about Jesus, but what we see when we look at Jesus that's important. It's what we see when we look at Jesus. What hits our vision and what doesn't? What of his nature and of his character comes into focus for us? And what's just over the horizon Does anyone know what magic eye is? Hands up again, let's do a little, we've got a few. Okay, I used to absolutely love magic eye as a kid. Um, basically, there were these books, yeah, we've got a little, um, this is the front cover, and there were these books with pages and pages of these patterns inside, and you'd, you'd go through them, and at first, we were like, what's, what's really going on here? But there was a trick. If you held the book up right up close to your eyes, let your eyes kind of go out of focus and then gradually pull the book away from your eyes, just like that. And it would, there would suddenly come into focus this amazing 3D image of a dog or a car or a landscape or something that was quite interesting. And you know, I, we didn't have 3D cinema back then, back in my day. Um, so I devoured these things, and as you can imagine, I was a pretty cool 10-year-old just going through my magic eyes. Uh, I, I did actually think maybe we could do one today on the screen and uh, see if we could kind of work it out, but A, I didn't want to be responsible for anyone getting cross-eyed, and also I thought it could be a bit of a weird group hypnotism thing, so we thought, let's not do that. Um, so, but in, instead, getting a place into seeing instead of thinking, I thought we could maybe just test our eyesight for a few moments and ask the question, what do you see? So I've got a few 
images. If we do the first slide, do you see a man looking at you or two men looking at each other? Next one, do you see horizontal lines or slanty lines? Should we do hands up for horizontal and slanty? Interesting. They are actually completely horizontal, just so you know. Okay, the next one, do you see a deer, elephant and giraffe or a seal, ostrich and penguin? Both, obviously, but you, anyone who hasn't spotted, they're exactly the mirror image of each other. And then finally, do you see a lovely married couple? <laughs> or, next slide. <laughs> a slightly creepy looking pastor trying to get in on the action. The idea is, what we see at first is maybe not the whole picture. Whether it's 3D images behind patterns, men's faces, lines, elephants, ostriches, creepy pastors, there's always more to be seen. And when we turn our face towards the Son of God, there's always more to be seen. In John 9, we've got these disciples have questions about the blind man's disability, Jesus healing the blind man with some mud and saliva, as you do, the neighbors demanding to know what happened, bringing him to the Pharisees, in turn question him and his parents, who basically said, don't ask us, ask our previously blind son, who then got thrown out of the synagogue for sticking to his story. Wow, okay, there's a lot going on. And as we spend some time getting under the skin of this story, there's a lot of ideas to do with sight and light and darkness that start to come into the fore. So as the festival of light is going on in the background, Jesus talks about himself being the light of the world, referencing what he'd said before in, in, earlier in John, where he said, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. So there's clearly more to this story than meets the eye. So let's take a closer look. When we take a closer look, we can see three groups of people that had different starting points and different endpoints. And we're going to go through each one, one by one. So firstly, we had the disciples who couldn't see. These are the guys that had been around Jesus the longest, who'd stuck with him even when the rest of them had left and decided to sack it. These disciples were still finding their way. Coming across the blind man, they asked whether it was him or his parents' sin that was the root cause for his blindness which we'd now think, come on, you know, we've all moved on from that. But actually, some of that thinking's not completely alien uh, to us today. Probably most of you haven't, uh, this won't be on your radar, but about 17 years ago, one of the old England managers got sacked uh, for having some similar views. And on one level, it's maybe fair enough to have an explanation for why bad stuff happens in the world. You know, that, that question about uh, why people suffer, why are people born um, into terrible situations or really hard situations that are beyond their control? It's, really, it's desperately hard to answer. And as human beings, we love to try and find answers, to try and make cause and effect, to try and make meaning out of mystery. But often these attempts may be well-intentioned. They fall short. 
and the disciples were still stuck in this old way of thinking. Secondly, we had the Pharisees who wouldn't see. Unlike the disciples, they were just not interested. Confronted with yet another opportunity to witness another miracle, this was the sixth out of seven in, in the Gospel of John, they choose to look elsewhere. They look at their own standards first. The fact that Jesus did this on the Sabbath means he can't be from God. He'd also needed mud and anointed the man's eyes on the Sabbath. There were two more infringements of the Pharisaical law and two more reasons why the Pharisees needed to sort this whole mess out. They just didn't want to know. Instead of looking at evidence with an open mind, they created this closed world, this world, this room that no light could break into. And maybe that was understandable. Maybe fear had crept in, fear of attack from the inside, inside their religious community, when they'd had so much attack from outside, from these Romans who'd come to occupy them. Maybe their principles and their laws were all they had to hold on to in these dark days. Maybe they couldn't see the perfect love that could cast out their fear. And then thirdly, we've got the blind man. The blind man who'd never seen. In contrast to the disciples who couldn't see and the Pharisees who wouldn't see, this blind man, he'd never seen physically or spiritually. To get more technical, there'd never been a moment in his life where a photon of light had reached his retina and transmitted a meaningful signal to his brain. And it doesn't look like he even knew who Jesus was, let alone that he was passing by or in the area, because it was actually Jesus who came to him. So many of the other stories we hear about them kind of crying out for Jesus to come, but actually this is where Jesus chooses to come to him. So we've got the disciples who couldn't see, the Pharisees who wouldn't see, and the blind man who'd never seen. And beyond all of this is the focus of the story, the point of the book, the light of the world, the one holding it together, the one making the pivotal difference, Jesus. And Jesus sees them. Jesus sees them. Whether the various people couldn't see, wouldn't see, had never seen, Jesus sees them exactly where they are and he deals with them in very, very different ways. And that's what we're going to look at now. We're going to look at the ways that Jesus deals with these different groups of people. Firstly, for those who can't see, he widens their vision. So for the disciples and their inability to see what was really going on, Jesus patiently responds to them. He says in verse 3, It isn't about the man or his parents. It's so the work of God can be displayed. It's for God's work to be displayed. And just when you think the disciples have arrived, especially when you've kind of whittled down to this core group, you know, the guys who are really going to make the difference, the guys who stuck it out through thick and thin, you think they've made it. There's another blind spot. Another blind spot comes out and they put their foot in it. And we see this time and time again through the whole of the Gospels, Peter, James and John and crew. They're all in. It's all about, I'm going to follow Jesus to the end of the earth. And then they just don't get the point. And then they muck up. And then they make a mistake. And then they're all in again. And there's this kind of ups and downs and cycles and backs and forths. And all through that, Jesus loves them and teaches them, and loves them some more, and teaches them a little bit more, patiently taking them along that journey, patiently helping them to see beyond what they know. 
he keeps widening their vision. And that's not like us, is it? We're not like that, those disciples. We can't relate to those in any shape or form, in any kind of minutiae of detail. We're steady and stable, consistent in what we know to be true, faithful in every way, right? Or maybe there are times when we don't fully see the picture, when we're kind of doing the right thing, but we're not really sure. We're doing our best to keep going, maybe despite the bad news that's flooding in from all parts of the world, or maybe the bad news that's a bit closer to home, or the things that we feel like are holding us back, whether it's the mortgage payments looming, um, the kids that are playing up, the job that feels like there's no way forward, the studies that keep mounting up. When we're trying to make sense of what, at the end of the day, is just a really hard situation. But all the time, Jesus is there, taking us by the hand, gently dismantling our assumptions, picking us up, helping us to see more widely, more vividly, more in focus than we ever did before. He's moving us from 2D to a 3D feature-length film. And more often than not, there's this reminder that comes with it of, this isn't about you. This isn't about you. This isn't about us. It's about the work of God being displayed through you. It's about God's work being displayed through you. It's about him. And then what about the Pharisees? For those who just won't see, he holds up the mirror. And I've been married for eight months now, um, so I can testify to a little bit of this experience. Uh, example, my hair has this impressive ability, I think, to mold to its surroundings and stick there for as long as is necessary. Um, I, you know, for example, if I didn't wash it in the morning, which occasionally, occasionally happens, um, I can have this interesting, quite lovable, quite likable thing I like to call bedhead chic. And there's this little uh, jaggy bit at the back that just kind of sticks out, and whatever you try to do to it, it will not budge. It is very, very stubborn. And I've managed to live pretty blissfully unaware of this for most of my life. You know, haven't had many big deals about it. It hasn't really affected my job opportunities or general success and, you know, things that I wanted to do. Post-marriage, however, I now find I've got a walking and talking piece of feedback. Advice, thoughts, updates, actually, on how the back of the head is doing. Suggestions, ideas. And of course, I'm really grateful for that love and support. <laughs> it's good she's not here. She can't hear me saying this. With the Pharisees and Jesus, there isn't a direct conversation between, between them. But this chapter is bang in the middle of this rise of hostility towards him. Why? Because he's calling out their behavior, their entrenchment in their views. Just as we heard last week, as Carl spoke, he's shining a light in the darkness. He's making some pretty bold claims, actually. He's saying the culmination of Moses and his laws and his teaching, all this stuff that you've, uh, you're holding so dearly to and holding so tightly to, I'm him. I'm the culmination of all of that that you've built your lives upon. And their hearts are exposed in that instant. Their hearts are exposed. Maybe they're not as open to this Messiah figure coming as they thought they were. And as this story continues through the chapter, they're finding themselves more and more extreme in their actions, desperately trying to find an answer that fits their view. 
Verse 24, we know this man's a sinner. Verse 29, we don't even know where he comes from. And you're like, guys, what you're saying doesn't, doesn't really make sense anymore. You're not really making sense for yourself, let alone for everyone outside. And then they resort to expelling him out of the community, out of the synagogue. As if that really helps and answers any questions. It's just pushing it down for a little bit longer. A shining light for those who want to stay in darkness becomes more and more uncomfortable. And so it is with Jesus on the scene. Again, can we relate to that? When God's offer of grace and healing and forgiveness is there for us to receive, arms wide open, but we choose something else? I'll be honest, sometimes I I think I prefer the darkness. I choose to look in another direction. When my heart feels hard or fearful, maybe hurting, maybe anxious or resentful or shocked, when I'm tired, when I'm guilty, when there's that self-critical voice that says, oh, you don't deserve another chance. What about in those moments? How could I choose to turn my face towards the light, to see God's grace poured out afresh? So we've done disciples, Pharisees. What about the blind man? This guy who hadn't seen since birth, physically or spiritually. What does Jesus do for him? Jesus gives him sight. Firstly, with his physical eyes, with mud and saliva, not the NHS standard for curing blindness, I'm told, but it does work nonetheless. Some say it was Jesus calling out the offensiveness in some of the hearts of the Jews, their hard-heartedness. Some say it might have been linked, like a metaphorical link to the dust from which Adam was created. Some say there was this thing about um, a belief about the saliva of heroic figures at the time. On one level, it doesn't really matter. The main point is, what G- the man did what Jesus said, and he was healed. He went to the, um, the pool of Siloam, and he could see. It's amazing stuff. The neighbors saw him. They weren't even sure if it was still him, because he changed so much. And that's the business that Jesus is in. He's in the business of healing, physical healing. We often talk about the spiritual side, but physical healing too. People in this church community, here at Central, around us, can testify to that, can testify to maybe feeling sick um, in some way and seeing God's healing come through. And we always want to make opportunities for that in our times where we meet together to see healing. Do we always see it when we pray? No. But the Gospels seem to indicate that whenever the kingdom of God is on its advancing then there are signs and wonders along the way. And then finally, we've got this now seeing man, life changed, meeting Jesus. And this is, uh, if we go to verse 35 to 41, this is after the man's been thrown out of the synagogue. Jesus heard that they'd thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. 
Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So what has happened here? What Jesus has done for the man physically, he now does for the man spiritually. The man who could see Jesus the prophet was now able to see Jesus the son of God. He's not just a healer or a kind of slightly out there, slightly weird doctor or optician, I guess. He's the very conduit of God's light to shine darkness into the world. And when the man believes, what other response does he have than to worship, to lay himself down? Prostrating is actually what the original text would speak to. And there's this kind of mirroring image of actually he's almost in the same position as he began this story uh, begging, but now his whole life has changed. And that would be a really great end. It's quite a a decent story, hopefully you'd agree. But there's this final punchline, and I really do like a punchline. And Jesus lands this with a real whack. So it turns out the Pharisees, who I thought had kind of said, you know, blind man, off you go, we're fine in our synagogue. And then the next bit is like the Pharisees are still around. You think, guys, what, what, what is the deal here? You can obviously a bit of fear of missing out, FOMO action going on. Um, so they're still there. And Jesus is aware of that and knows that. And he says in verse 41, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So, uh, sorry, Jesus. If you're blind, you wouldn't be guilty, but you claim you can see, so your guilt remains. What, what does that mean? What is he actually saying here? I, I think if I was to put it in another way, it would be this. Seeing is not believing. Seeing is not believing. If we think about this, the more we can see, the less we believe, and the more our guilt remains. But the less we think we can see, the more we're able to believe and let our guilt be washed away. It's a bit counterintuitive, isn't it? It's a bit kind of wrong way around. But the more we think we can see, the less we can believe. The less we think we can see, the more we can believe. And I think that's a really tough one to swallow. For me, it's a constant callback to humility, to acknowledge our blindness, to know that we don't actually know it all, and to see that we don't actually see it all, to keep asking ourselves the questions, what do we see when we look at Jesus? I said earlier that I work in this, the field of business psychology, so I work with lots of leaders in different organizations, and one of the really big things we talk about is self-awareness and self-insight. So no matter how, how good you are at managing stuff and making things happen, there's a, there's a really key trait that we, that we think is really key and important, which is actually how do you understand yourself? So if you know that you're not hot in the detail, you make sure that someone in your team is. If you know that you're quite a dominant character, then you make sure that you take time to listen to those around you. But what we're hearing and what we're finding from this story it isn't just about self-awareness, but it's about Jesus' awareness. What's your Jesus' awareness like? How aware of you of who he is and what he's up to in your life? 
these works of God that he's looking to display through you and in you. In your missional community, what's your Jesus awareness like? Yes, there's the whole being aware of the community, the people that you're looking to engage with and understand and and hang out with. But what's your Jesus awareness like? What's your awareness of what he's up to, of the works of God that he's trying to do through you? What do you see when you look at Jesus? What comes to mind for you in your mind's eye? Of all the different angles that we've looked at over the the last eight weeks, what's the one that's like, yeah, that's the Jesus I know? But on the other side, who's the Jesus that you don't see? Where have you got entrenched in a certain way of looking, in a certain way of being, in a certain way of understanding? And where's he gently coming alongside and saying, actually, I'm more than that. I'm so much more than that. What you've got used to, it's some of the truth, but the truth is so much bigger. And I'm here to display my work in you. Yeah, I think, I think we'll stop it there and I think we'll, we'll just take some time to respond and to, to allow uh, the eyes of our hearts to be, to be opened again by the, by the Holy Spirit. So should we stand as we do that and just take a few moments. We've got a bit of time. I've shared some stuff and kind of tried to articulate some of that, but I think God can do that in a whole much deeper and more interesting and relevant way to you and where you're at and what that means for your life and your family and your set of circumstances and your um, situations. So Lord, Holy Spirit, we now just say, would you come? We invite you now. You've been here all along. You're with us all the time, but right now we ask you to come in a special way and and open the eyes of our hearts. Take off the scales, Lord, where they've maybe got uh, slightly tired. More of you, Lord, more of your Holy Spirit. Now just wait on him, just just allow him to come. Just allow him to come and minister to you where you are. Allow the light to shine. Just say yes, Lord, we say yes to you, we receive you. Say more of you. More of you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. And we just continue to wait.
the places that we've maybe squashed down or pushed down, Lord, we allow you to shine your light. And as we continue to pray, as we continue to stay in that space of receiving, keep engaging with God, if um, there's just a couple of groups of people, I wonder if um, specifically uh, God might want to, to minister to you. One, one was that um, thing around the, the, the Pharisees saying to the blind man about him being steeped in sin, kind of speaking that over him, saying you're steeped in sin. And I wonder if there's one or two people here today that feel like that, feel like you're steeped in sin, that it's up to the eyes in it, you can't get out of it, kind of in this, this, this mire. And Jesus wants to call you out of that. He wants to open your eyes and help you see the truth. And then the second group, just um, in a maybe more simple way, is it's like you can't see the wood from the trees at the moment. You're trying to see over the next few months, over the, the next little while, and it's just... It's, it's mud, it's mushy, it's blurred, it's, it feels stuck. And I'm wondering if, if God would want to come and open your eyes and again to see, maybe not the stuckness, but to see the work of God that he wants to display in you and through you. So if that's you, there'll be people to pray here on my right, your left, um, or even just to, to grab the person that you're with and, and ask that. But Lord, we, we want to to bless that and bless what you're doing. So keep engaging. Lord, we, yeah, we want more of you. We want to see you more. We want you to help us to see.